I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles tonight and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12 tonight. Tonight is the final evening service of this week of uh, evangelistic revival services. Tomorrow we'll have chapel, and that will be our last chapel of the week. And tomorrow morning I'm going to be spending time talking about the overall big picture of discipleship here at the university But tonight I'd like us to talk about what Paul is speaking about here in Romans chapter 12. And he has been writing, if you've read the book of Romans, and I'm sure many of you have, it's the the peak, if you could say it this way, of the doctrine of salvation from beginning to end. And Paul has been writing about that in the first eight chapters, and then he comes in verses in chapters 9, 10, and 11, and he deals with the issue of the Jewish people and where do they fit in God's plan. And we come to chapter 12, and this is really the challenging point. It's, it's moving from doctrine to action. That is acting out what you believe, and that's the way the Christian life is lived. You believe, and then you live that out. It's not just trying to live it out without believing, and it's not just believing without acting it out. The both go together. So it's both your creeds and your deeds. It's understanding who God is, what God has done. But you have to live it out. It's the practical part of life. And so in Romans 12, in beginning in verses 1 and 2, he basically lays a foundation of what this looks like. And in verse 1, he tells us these words. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that is based on everything that God has done and shown us mercy, That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And what he's saying here is that every believer needs to come to a place in his life where he completely dedicates his whole life to God. I became a Christian at the age of 19 years old. And uh, immediately God began to work in my life. And I, I really struggled back and forth with so many different areas of my life. But what it really came down to was a surrender. Would I give God everything or not? And it was probably over the process of about a year that I came to the place where I really said to God, God, you can have everything in my life. But that's not enough. That's just the starting point. And in verse 2, he tells us these words, And be not conformed to this world. Literally, you are living in a world that is hostile to God. And that world puts constant pressure on you. And of course, I don't really need to expound on that tonight because you live in the world and you're constantly pressured by the world you're living in. And of course, we have that greater sense because we have greater access to the world through technology. And it's the pressure. The world wants to squeeze you into its mold. So there's a dedication of your life to God. Then there's a commitment to be set apart from the world. And then we come to the last phrase here in verse in verse 2, and that's what I want us to look at tonight, because each one of these points is a full sermon, and I really want us to take the time to develop what Paul is telling us to do here when he says in verse 2, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The Bible here tells us that we are to be transformed. That's what I want to talk about tonight. Because what we're going to do is take the idea and we'll just, just like you do on your phone, you'll zoom into a picture. I want us to zoom into a much closer look 
and take the time, if I could say it this way, to go deeper, to understand. By the way, that's rain. Welcome to South Carolina. It's like baby's diapers. The weather's always changing. So um, that's the way it is here, so get used to it. But Paul is here telling us that we are to be transformed. That's really what the Christian life is. It's a transformation. It's, it's a metamorphosis. It's like a caterpillar that goes into a cocoon. And two weeks later, it breaks out, transformed into a stunningly beautiful butterfly. That's what's to happen in our life. We used to be this, but now we're this. We were an old man, now we're a new man. We were in darkness, but now we're in the light. It's like the transfiguration of Jesus, if you know the story, that he went up on a, ha- a high mountain. Peter, James, and John were there. And suddenly Jesus changed. His face began to shine like the sun. His clothes began to radiate as brilliant, bright, white light. And the Bible says that Jesus was transfigured or he was transformed. That's the Christian life. And Paul says that we are to be transformed. Be ye transformed. But with that command, there's also a dilemma. Would you look at what he says here in verse 2? He says, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, The subject here is the Christian, you. You be transformed. The verb is in the present tense. It's something that I'm supposed to be experiencing right now. In other words, every day, throughout the course of the day, I'm to be going through a process of being transformed. So I want to start by asking you, are you being transformed right now? Now, maybe you're sitting there going, okay, I'm not so sure. I can understand that. But it is what's to be happening in your life. You're to be being transformed right now. And that the mood here is what we call the imperative. It's a command. So it's not an option. It's an obligation. All of us here. How many of you are Christians? Raise your hand. You're a believer? Okay. So you are commanded by God to be being transformed right now. So it's right for me to ask you, are you being transformed? But... With this command is a huge dilemma. And why is that? Because the voice of the command, and if you, if you've never taken Greek, you, you don't really think of it this, you really don't think in this way, but it's the way it's written. The voice is in the passive tense. Do you know what a passive tense is? Well, you know what the active tense is. If your parents say pick up your clothes, that's called active tense. You're supposed to do that. But the passive is different because it's the idea that something is happening to you. You are receiving or you are having an action being acted upon you. So here's the dilemma. It means that you're commanded to do something that someone else is to do to you. How can God command you to do something and someone else do it? That is the dilemma, and yet those of us who are believers understand it because we understand that in the Christian life, without Jesus, I can do nothing. It is God that works in you, both the will and the do of His good pleasure. 
God works in and we are to work it out. So he says, be ye transformed. But God's got to do the work. And then we find in the phrase, he actually gives it even greater clarification when he tells us how this takes place. Notice what he says. Be ye transformed. Okay. Well, how does this work? And what does he say? By the renewing of your mind. Now, when you would normally study it, the word by there is is what we call a preposition. It would mean through the means of. So how are you transformed? Through the means of, this is the way, through the means of renewing your mind. And the word renewing there would typically be a verb or participle. It's an action. So how am I transformed? I'm transformed through the means of being renewed in my mind. But when you look at it in the original language, it's not written that way at all. The way it's written is there are two nouns. So it says this, be ye transformed. And then it says the renewal and the mind. And it is right there that God is showing us how this process takes place. For the renewal is the divine side of the way that you're transformed. It's like an inner city renewal. It refers to something new or something different or something superior or something higher. It's like when Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana. The master of the ceremony, the wedding coordinator, coordinator said that the wine was better than anything he had drank previously. It was a better quality. It was transformed. When the Bible says you're to be transformed, the renewal is something that God does. He is the transformer. He is the renewer. You can't do it. He must do it. But then it says the mind. That's the human side. That is, this transformation takes place in the sphere or the realm of your thinking. And the word mind there literally means a way of thinking. Okay? It's like the demon-possessed maniac of Gadara. Do you remember him in the Bible? Who was delivered from a legion of devils by Jesus? And afterwards, the local people came to see Jesus. And of course, you know, you know the story of, of, of the fact that he was demon possessed and he had a legion of, of demons inside of him. Of course, the legion was 6,000 soldiers. We don't know how many exactly. It was a whole bunch, but we know that the demons went out of him. And where did they do? What did what happened to them? They went, they went into the body of pigs. And what did the pigs do? They ran down down the embankment into the Sea of Galilee and they were all drowned. This was a wild man. This was a crazy man. And when the local people came and discovered him, what was he doing? The Bible says that he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. He was clothed and he was what? In his right what? His right way of thinking. And we see in that what transformation is. It is a whole new way of thinking. Let me say this, that the, that the Christian life is a transformation of the way somebody thinks. I remember years ago driving down from 
Asheville, North Carolina, Hendersonville, North Carolina, late one Sunday evening coming into Greenville. And I was listening to the radio station. On the radio station, it had the sermons of the founder of Bob Jones University named Bob Jones Sr., Dr. Bob Jones Sr. And he was preaching a sermon about changing. And he talked about the mind. And he was talking about the fact that most of the problems in the life of a believer after he's saved is in the way that he thinks. And he hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't changed his thinking. And in an essence, this is what Paul is saying. So how does this transformation actually work? Well, it's one thing to know this, but it's another thing to experience this. Our living level is generally much lower than our knowing level. You're going to be sitting in college and getting a lot of knowledge, but that doesn't mean that your living level has caught up to your knowledge level. We are often too, we are too much in the way that we think, in our, in our habits and our actions. We are more like, we're more like reflecting the habits of the maniac than we are the master. We are often too much like those who've run out of the good wine at the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee and the wine representing the joy of the Christian life, then we are more like, we're more like the wine of the lower level, the lesser level. In other words, we know the Lord, but the level of our life doesn't really express the joy of the Lord. So the question is, how does this transformation actually work in our lives? And that's what I want us to look at tonight. Because I want us to take the Apostle Paul who wrote this verse and I want to show you two specific ways in which God transformed his life. And I think through that transformation, we will see how it is that God is going to constantly transform our life so that we can obey the command, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians 12, if you will. 2 Corinthians 12, and here Paul is describing two transformative experiences that he went through in his life. This, The first transformation or transformative experience that he went through was an experience of exaltation. Let me read it to you beginning in chapter 12 and verse 1. Paul says, it is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. In other words, he says, I must go on boasting. The word glory there means to boast. He said, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Now, if you read it on, you'll, it becomes very clear Paul here is speaking about himself. He says, so 14 years ago, I knew a man, whether in the body, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell, God knows, such as one that was called up to the third heaven. What is the third heaven? Well, there's the atmosphere of the earth, then there's the heavens as we look up in the sky, and the third heaven is beyond that which is impossible to see, and that is the presence of God. He says, I was called up into the third heaven, And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows how that he was called up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful 
for a man to utter. Of such a one will I glory or boast, yet of myself I will not boast of glory, but in my infirmities. So let's just stop there. The Bible here is explaining an experience that the Apostle Paul had that you and I have never, ever had. And that is he had an experience and he didn't know if it was out of the body or in the body. By the way, most of you have had out-of-body experiences. That's called sitting in class. And suddenly you go somewhere else and then you come back when the class is over, when the class is finished. All right, you understand that. But he had an out-of-body experience, or in the body. He doesn't know. But the Scripture says here he was called up into heaven. And he saw things, and things were revealed to him that, in essence, nobody else had ever experienced. Now, when did this take place? Well, Paul says it was about 14 years before he wrote 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians was written about 55 to 56 A.D., so it was right around 41 A.D. So where would Paul have been in 41 A.D.? Well, you can back up in a timeline. Jesus, Jesus was crucified and resurrected about 30 A.D. The Apostle Paul was saved about, the, about 33 A.D. For three years he was in the Arabian desert taught by the Lord And in 36 A.D., he went to the city of Jerusalem for two weeks where he met with Peter and James, the brother of the Lord. And then from there, he went back to his home in Tarsus in the in the area known as Cilicia. And he was there from about 36 A.D. to 46 A.D. when a fellow named Barnabas came and brought him back or brought him to the city of Antioch. And that's where we see Paul beginning his ministry as he goes out on his missionary journeys. So between 36 and 46 A.D. were the silent years of his life. He was in the city of Tarsus. And this was written right in the middle of that time. Or this experience took place right in the middle of that time. The silent years. And the experience that he had was very unique. He was called up to the third heaven. But let me say that the experience was not without precedence. In other words, certain chosen men in the Bible had visions and they had dreams. Men like Abraham, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph had dreams. Moses, Gideon, Solomon. The prophets, Isaiah, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Ezekiel saw the wheel. Daniel, the whole book of Daniel, you read about the visions and and the, the revelations that Daniel had. Amos, Zechariah. We come to the New Testament. We know Peter had a vision. A sheet came down from heaven with unclean animals on it while he was praying. We know John wrote the book of the Revelation. It was a vision. And, of course, Paul himself had a number of visions. He was in the city of Troas, and he saw a man of Macedonia calling him to come over and to preach. He was in the city of Corinth and had a night vision where the Lord encouraged him that God had many people in the city. So when you go back in the Bible, there were lots of people who had dreams and visions. And the point I'd like to make is this, that certain special and godly men who sought God in prayer throughout the Bible were given the special privileges of seeing God. Now, is that something that you can experience? Well, the Bible says that the pure in heart shall what? 
see God. Now, regarding a vision or a dream like the Old Testament prophets had, who were in the process of writing the Scripture, and in the New Testament apostles had, who were in the process of writing the Scriptures, we are not given dreams and visions because the, the Scriptures have been closed. We read that in the book of the Revelation, and God says, don't add to what has been written or a curse will come upon you. So in the one hand, we're not going to see dreams and revelations like they did in these particular times. But the Bible does say, the pure in heart shall see God. And how can you, may I say it this way, have this experience of exaltation? And the Bible actually teaches how we as believers can experience that. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And verse 18. And I want you to notice what the scripture says. Paul is writing. And he says, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. Are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. When he says are changed there, it's the same word in Romans 12 too, when it says be ye transformed. He is telling us how you and I can go through an experience of transformation. And if I could say it this way, almost an experience of exaltation, because it is in this experience that you experience the glory of God. And what is he talking about when he says, we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed? Would you, would you back up in, in chapter 3 and look at what he says in verse 15 or verse 14? He says, but their minds were blinded for until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jews in the synagogue who are reading the Old Testament, and they don't realize that what they're really reading about in the Old Testament is about Jesus. But when that veil is taken away, when is it taken away? When you receive Jesus as your Savior, what does He tell us? He tells us our eyes are opened. We begin to see what you've never seen before. I remember when I got saved at 19 years old. I had gone to church all my life. I grew up going to church. But when I got saved, I started seeing things in the Bible I'd never seen before. The author of the Holy Spirit, the author of the Bible, the Holy Spirit lives in my heart. And I would read the Bible and all of a sudden it's like the words were jumping off the page. I was seeing God in the reading of the Scriptures. Where do you and I behold the glory of God? It is in the mirror. What is the mirror? It is the Word of God that reflects the glory of God. When I open this book and I read this book, I'm not just reading words on pages, but I'm reading the Word of God. And the author of this book lives in the heart of every believer. What is the transformative experience that really changes your life? It is when you see the Lord. And where do you see the Lord? You see the Lord in the pages of the Scripture. How is it that we go through a transformative experience? How is it that we experience the glory of the Lord? It is in the reading of the Word of God. Folks, you can be a Christian for years and rarely grow until you begin to see the glory of God in the reading of the Bible. 
I remember very clearly my sophomore year of college. I mentioned it the other night that that was the most transformative year of my life in the beginning of my Christian life because it was that year I started reading the Bible. I was in a secular a secular college. I was surrounded by unbelievers. But every morning I would get up and I would start reading my Bible at 7 o'clock and I would spend about an hour in Bible reading and prayer before I would go to class. And it was in those wee morning of the hours as I would read the Scripture, God would speak to me. I would see the Lord in the Scripture and the Lord began to work in my life. You see, that's, that's the way transformation works. We're commanded to be transformed, but He has to do the work. How do I do that? I do that by seeing the glory of God. Just like Moses saw the glory of God on the Mount of Sinai and He came down and His face was glowing from being in the presence of the Lord. When you and I spend time in the Bible, there's this experience of exaltation. I'm in the presence of the Lord. You don't have to go to the third heaven to experience the glory of God. All you have to do is go to the Bible. That, By the way, that's where you're supposed to say amen. Amen. You can, you can say amen, okay? Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, you don't have to clap. Just say amen, alright? I don't need a clap. Amen. Amen, preacher. I like what the preacher said one time. If you don't amen, I'm going to amen myself. Amen, preacher. That was good. <laughs> How do you change? You have to read your Bible. Now, let me tell you something. You can know you're supposed to change. You can know you're supposed to be transformed. But if you don't read your Bible, you're not going to change. You come to Bob Jones University. You want to change? You want to change? You want to change? Will somebody say yes? Amen. Then read your Bible. And if you will seek the Lord, you will see the Lord in the pages of the Scripture. And as you read the Word of God, what do you do? You see your God. And so, if I could say it this way, like Paul had an experience of exaltation, So you and I, by spending time in the Word of God, can literally have our lives transformed. So that's the first experience. But then there's a second experience. And that's found going back to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. And here we see the second experience of the way we're transformed. And that's an experience of humiliation. Look at what he says in verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. God is saying, Paul, you've gone through this experience, which is an amazing experience, and it would be easy for you to become conceited. The idea here of being conceited is not only being puffed up, but the implication is that you have a tendency to disparage other people. You understand this. I'm smart, you're... I'm strong, you're... Yeah. I'm rich, you're... That's human nature. And and God is saying, Paul, you have been exalted, but for you to be transformed, you also need to be humbled. And God took him through a process of humiliation. 
And how did he do that? The Bible tells us here that God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh. And that thorn in the flesh was the means or the tool or the process through which God would transform him. Where he would, through the power of God, have a whole new way of thinking. Remember? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The way that you think. You read your Bible, your mind is renewed. But you also go through suffering in your life. And you're also transformed through that suffering. So God took Paul through a transformational process. And every one of us sitting here tonight are going to go through a transformational process. The experience of humiliation. So what's that process? And I want to just briefly give you the process. It's very simple to remember. You can write it down because it's something you're going to experience if you're a true believer. It is the process by which God transforms us. And that process begins, first of all, and I'll begin with the word pain. Paul said it this way, to keep me from being conceited because of the greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. The word thorn here means some kind of serious trouble and difficulty, something that is painful. And he says it's a thorn in the flesh. Now, what does he mean by the flesh. Well, when you read the New Testament, you discover that the word flesh is used in different ways. For example, sometimes it can refer to the human body. Job said, in my flesh, I shall see God. Secondly, it can refer to human strength. That is my own self-effort. The uh, We would say a, a DYI religion, do it yourself. Paul said, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh, by your own self-effort? And then thirdly, the word flesh refers to sinful, corrupt human nature. And so Paul says, for I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. So Paul said a thorn in the flesh was given him. So which one is it? Is it his body? Was it a physical problem? Was it, was it his, was, was it his sinful nature, a temptation? Was it his sense of weakness and inability? What is the thorn in the flesh? Well, actually, we don't know. We could say it's all of the above. It's something that's come into my life that is incredibly painful, a pain point. It could be a physical problem. It could be a, re- a relational problem, a person who has come into your life. And that person or that physical problem or that issue or that stress or that pressure that has come into your life has affected you. It has affected you emotionally. It has affected you mentally. It has affected you spiritually. And let me say this tonight, you can't separate them all. You can't say your emotion's here, your spiritual life is here, and your mind is here. It doesn't work that way. We're all holistically together. So I can struggle in my body and struggle in my mind and struggle in my emotions and and struggle in the spiritual part of my being. And then on top of all of those things, Paul tried, but he couldn't get over it. 
His own self-effort just didn't work. But I want to take it a little step further, for the thorn received a greater clarification of its effects on Paul because the Bible says it was a means by which Satan harassed him. Satan beat him down. It was a means by which Satan spoke into his life. Believe me, my friend, God can speak into your life and so can Satan. And through pain points, oftentimes we struggle mentally and emotionally and we go through these things in our life and Satan begins to speak into your life. But what I want you to note is Paul is saying that this is the means by which you're transformed. This is the way. It is a way of suffering. Think with me a moment. When Jesus was crucified, he was nailed to a cross and a crown of thorns was placed on his head. And before there was a resurrection, there was a crucifixion. The pathway to transformation is always through the thorns. And so a thorn in the flesh was given to him. And I want to say to all of you, a thorn in the flesh is going to be given to you. But I want to ask this question, is it a guarantee that your life will be transformed because you have a thorn in the flesh? Is it a guarantee? The answer is absolutely not. Because oftentimes our reactions to the thorn in the flesh actually come out of our own sinful heart. So instead of being humbled, we become proud. Instead of becoming thankful, we become angry and we become bitter. All of a sudden, our emotions are aroused and instead of crucifying our sinful desires, they become very much alive. Jesus said to Peter, he said, Peter, Satan hath desired you that he may sift you as wheat. When you and I are tempted, there's always two sides to a temptation. It's like a coin, a heads and a tails. On one side, there is the, there is the work of Satan. On the other side, there is the work of God. God wants to build you up through the temptation. Satan wants to tear you down. And so all of us here are involved in the transformation. Did he not say you be transformed? Did he not command you to do something? And yet on the other hand, God's got to help us and God's got to empower us. But you have to do something. You have to respond correctly. So that leads to the second point in the process. And that is we go from pain to prayer. Look at what Paul says in verse 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it might depart from me. Three times Paul pled that God would take away the thorn in the flesh. By the way, that's the most natural thing to do. I have this thorn. God, please remove it. I want it out of my life. And why is it that we pray? Why do we pray? Because we recognize prayer is the means by which God changes things. But the question is, what is it fundamentally that needs to change? Let me ask you a question. How many times did Jesus pray for the cup of suffering to be removed from him? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed three times. 
But in his prayer, he also said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus confessed his desire to be delivered from the wrath of God. And yet at the same time, he surrendered to the will of God. Prayer changes things, but in this case, the change was actually in the way Paul was thinking. You see, when you and I go through pain points in our life, we all think that the way that we overcome it is that God removes it. But in reality, there's something else that God wants to do. He wants to change the way that you think. Because God's goal in the purpose of the thorn was to transform Paul into a humble man. Think about the one who is exalted to go to heaven was also the one who still had a sin nature and still had to learn humility. All of us still have to learn humility. What was Paul desiring in his request? Was he aligning himself with the will of God? Well, we know the natural way of thinking is the problem is the thorn. If I have the thorn removed, I will be better off. However, God's ways are not our ways and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And God's intention in Paul was to change Paul. He was to transform Paul. So what was the purpose of prayer? It was not so much to get the thorn out of his life, but it was to get him, get Paul in a place where he was completely aligned with the purposes of God. That's what prayer is all about. Prayer is always pursuing God. God, what is your will? I know many of you are going to go through many experiences where you will experience a breaking in your life, pain points in your life, and you're going to fall before God and ask God to take it away. And in some cases, God will, but in some cases, God will not. And the whole point of prayer is that I am yielding to God's control. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. God, I'm giving up my way. I'm giving up my rights. I want to be in a place, God, where I am satisfied with you regardless of the circumstances. Prayer is the starting place where God begins to change my thinking. My wife said to me one day, she said, sweetheart, I am so glad you pray. I said, why? She says, because when you come out of the prayer closet, you're a whole lot easier to live with than when you went into the prayer closet. You want transformation. It's not going to be by self-effort. You can't do it. It is in that secret, if I could say almost that mysterious spiritual place where you come to God and you bring these pain points and you cast yourself upon the Lord. And that's the second step in the process. But notice the third step. And Paul tells us in verse 9, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The third step in this process is the word power. Paul said, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my power is made perfect. My strength is made perfect in weakness. God said he would not remove the thorn, but he would give Paul sufficient grace. What is grace? Grace is divine enablement. It is the supernatural ability to do that, which I cannot naturally do by myself. I can't overcome this by myself. That's why I go back to be transformed. He's commanding you to do something you can't do by yourself. God's got to do this. 
And so what is grace? Grace says, I can't, but God can. And he says, my grace is enough. It is adequate. It is sufficient. It puts you in a place where you can be satisfied and content. He has said, my grace is more than enough. God's grace is more than enough for every pain point in your life. But then notice he says, not only will he give you sufficient grace, but God, but Paul, but God says, I will give you, Paul, perfect power. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. The word strength is the word power. It's the word, you probably heard it before, dunamis. It is, it is divine ability. It's a synonym for grace. In other words, when you think of power, think of grace. When you think of grace, think of power. The two go together. And he says that my strength, my power is made perfect in weakness. What does the word perfect here mean? It doesn't mean sinless or without mistakes. It's the idea of accomplishing or fulfilling something. Let me say it this way. God makes something happen in you through your weakness that can never happen without God's working. God makes something happen in you. God's power works in me through my weakness. God, God's power works or accomplishes something in me that is being used through the weakness. And what is happening is I, I'm, as I, as I go through this, this, this point in my life and I surrender to God, all of a sudden, I begin to realize God is, a, is enabling me to do what I cannot do naturally. I'm not naturally humble. I'm not naturally not reactionary. I mean, let's, let's face it, the, the, the pain is hard. I want to respond. I want to react. I want to blow up. I want to become bitter. I want to become angry. I want God to take it away. But I can't do that. And I can't change. But God takes me to this place of surrender to Him. And we use another word that describes it, and it's the word brokenness. God breaks me over my own self-will, and God empowers me to be humble and to trust Him. That's the means of transformation. Paul realized what God was doing. The thorn brought him to a place where God gave him power and grace to overcome both the thorn and his own pride through humble dependence. And that leads me to the last thing. And that is that you can know all this and not be fully transformed because there's one more point, and that is the point of praise. Look at what he says in verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses. He's just described five different pain points. Infirmities are physical, reproaches are verbal, necessities are financial, persecutions are spiritual, and distresses. Distresses can be national, like like COVID was a very distressing time. It can be war, like what's going on in Ukraine. It can be all kinds of national issues that we are facing distressing times. Notice what he says, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. I am become a fool in glorying. That is, what did he do? He boasted in his weakness. He praised God for his pain. He says, I will boast. I will express a high degree of confidence in the Lord. 
And I will do it all the more gladly. Not that he, not that he, he happily enjoys it all. But he has come to the point to understand that this is what God is using in his life to transform him. And he is thanking God and he is praising God. And this is when you've gone through the process. Now, let's be honest. To go from pain to praise usually doesn't happen in the first 30 minutes. It's a process. And God takes all of us through this process. And through this process, we are transformed. So what do you have to do? You have to trust the process. You have to trust God. So what are the pain points in your life? What is God doing? God is doing something. You need to get on your knees and surrender to God and seek God and pray. And it may take you a while. And it may take you more than one one time with God. It may take you a long time. In some ways, it could take weeks in your life of just daily surrendering to God because you still have to live with the pain point. And God will give you power. God will enable His broken, humble servant to be able to continue on joyfully and be content. And in the end, I will be able to praise God and thank God for all that He's doing in my life. So, how are we transformed? He's commanded us, be transformed. We have an experience of exaltation. We see the glory of the Lord. How do we see the glory of the Lord? We see it in the Word of God. The the, the best time of my day is when I get up in the morning. I get up in the morning every morning, do the exact same thing. I wake up, I make coffee. You can be saved without coffee, but it's hard to be spiritual. You wake up and you get coffee. I take a shower to wake up because for me, waking up in the morning is not bouncing out of bed. It is resurrecting from the dead. And once I'm ready, I go in, make my coffee, sit down, and I spend the first hour of my day in the Word of God. That's my high point. Some days it goes downhill real fast, but that's the high point. That's the glory. That's the exaltation. That's seeing the Lord. That's how God changes you. But then there's also the experience of humiliation. God is going to allow in your life pain points. And God's going to use that in your life. And we can pray for God to take them away. Jesus did it. Paul did it. But that pain will lead me to a place of prayer. And that prayer is a point of surrender And while I pray, that is where God gives me power. That is where He gives me sufficient grace to endure and to continue on. And then in the end, I begin to praise Him for what He's doing in my life. And that's when I'm being transformed. Be ye transformed. Would you bow your head with me, please? Lord, we thank you tonight for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your grace in our life and your patience with us. Lord, I pray for everyone in this building who is a true Christian, that they will be transformed. Lord, you've commanded us, and yet we cannot do it without your power. So tonight, I pray that you will work in our hearts in a very deep and meaningful way, that we would respond to you in real humility. And, Lord, that you will bring about changes in the hundreds of lives tonight. Their heads bowed and eyes closed tonight. First of all, may I ask this question, are you a Christian?
Are you saved? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you been born again? Have you repented of your sin and believed on Christ and become a new creation in Him? How many of you could say tonight, I thank God that I'm a Christian. I do know Jesus as my Savior. How many of you could say that tonight? Would you raise your hand hold it up? Praise God. You may put your hands down. Question number two. How many of you would say, not only do I need to be transformed, but I, I actually want to be transformed. I really do. How many of you would acknowledge that tonight? Would you lift your hand, slip it up? I really want to be transformed. I'm saved and I want to be transformed. I want God to change me. I want to grow. I want to become more like him. Would you lift your hand as a testimony to that tonight? God bless you. May put your hands down. Now let me get a little more closer to home. How many of you would be honest and say, I do want to be transformed, but I have not been in the word. And the word is the experience of being lifted up to the Lord. And how many of you would say tonight, I do need to begin to read my Bible. I really need to spend time with God. Pray for me tonight. Would you lift your hand? Slip it up all over the building. You may put your hands down. God bless you. All right, here's the other one. Not only is there an experience of exaltation, but there is an experience of humiliation. How many of you would say tonight, pray for me that I would trust the process of God through these pain points? A thorn in the flesh, a pain, prayer and surrender, God's power to you and your weakness, and then praising him. How many of you would say, please pray for me that I would trust God in this process? And I... I I, I want to trust the Lord. I, I don't want to turn away from God, but I want to turn to God. Please pray for me tonight. Would you lift your hand all over the building? Pray for me tonight. God bless you. you. may put your hands down. One final question. Is there anyone here tonight who would say, Dr. Pettit, if I die tonight, I don't know that I would go to heaven. I'm not sure that I'm saved. And God has been speaking to me even since I've come here on the campus of Bob Jones University. And you would say, please pray for me. I don't want to die without God. I don't want to die in my sins. I want to know that heaven is my home. Please pray for me tonight. Would you allow me to pray for you by just lifting your hand? Pray for me tonight, preacher. God bless you. God bless you. Pray for me tonight. Would you lift your hand? Slip it up right where you're seated. Pray for me. Right where you are, just lift your hand. Now, Lord, you know everyone in this building. Nobody in this building you do not know. You know our hearts. You've made our hearts. I thank you, Lord, that you live in the hearts of so many in this building. And, Lord, may this be a time of deep surrender and deep yielding of our lives to you. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.